Welcome to Bible News Press. Our goal is to discuss biblical faith beyond cliches and buzzwords, whether such words are religious or political. Sometimes we sit around the table and fellowship. Sometimes we do a little time travel. It is all part of our journey with our Abba Father, who has given us the key to life. We do it with Jesus, and we do it together. Welcome. Hello, I'm Laura. Today I'm going to share some thoughts on Jesus's perspective of the cross. We can get this perspective based on a continuous stream of claims and explanations made in the Gospels and in the letters from the Apostles who were taught directly by Jesus, but we're going to be mostly focusing on John, uh, particularly because we just listened to it. Now, if you are listening to the podcast in order, you know that I did start reading Job. I've read the first couple of chapters, and those podcasts have been published, but I needed a couple of days to write down the notes for this presentation, and we will get back to Job after we share these thoughts on Jesus' perspective of the cross. If I was going to summarize Jesus's perspective based on this plethora of verses, again, this is not just a couple of random statements buried in a lot of moral examples and teachings. This is all throughout the book of John. Jesus predicted his death on the cross very specifically. He cooperated with the plan. He controlled the timing and he saw beyond it. One of the other reasons that I'm particularly focusing on what Jesus claims and presents about the cross is that for personal reasons, I have found it necessary to thoroughly investigate some claims which I have found out fall under the description of progressive Christianity. A brief description of progressive Christianity, and I specifically say description rather than definition because this is not an organization or a group with a settled creed. Rather, it is a term that many people are using of themselves to say that they are growing in their understanding of God and the Bible. But unfortunately, as good as it sounds, they are not talking about Christian maturity in biblical terms. What is meant is that they are realizing they are realizing, we're not advocating this, that the Bible is not the authoritative word of God, that both the Old Testament and the New Testament are just conversations of sorts between various people trying to put together their ideas about God, and that the New Testament was a primitive attempt to explain who Jesus was and what he did. Plus, they use the idea of the Spirit as being active in revealing to them things like God's justice is only the doctrine of judgmental or narrow-minded religious people. And this includes the idea that the God of the Bible is presented as a cosmic child abuser. That term has actually been used multiple times by people that I have listened to. And that the concept that the disciples and Jesus present in the Bible of God presenting Jesus as a sacrifice is a a sick philosophy, and that God didn't even plan it, but gave in to the angry mob. The bottom line is that their faith is now based on human philosophies, where they decide what God should be like, and there's no standard of truth other than what feels right to them. In fact, if the word Christian is removed from the explanation, it is all very much like New Age mysticism. That being said, it is a very large umbrella, and the most common factor is that since God is love, 
the other ways he describes himself in the Bible can be at best disregarded, but at worst vilified. And I will link to some other more thorough discussions of progressive Christianity, but now proceed to what the Apostle John recorded about Jesus and Jesus's view of the cross. Because if you are going to call yourself a Christian, it should be based on what Jesus Christ is like and said in the only God-given not to mention very historically verifiable documents that we have. Right off in the first chapter of John, we have John the Baptist introducing Jesus as the Lamb of God. From an Old Testament Jewish perspective, there is only one reason to call someone the Lamb of God. He is going to be a sacrifice. John does this twice, and we see Jesus verifying this appellation a couple of ways. First, he goes to John and he tells him to baptize him, even though John doesn't really want to, because he doesn't think he is worthy to. And then if you refer to Luke chapter 7, verse 28, Jesus talks about John as being a prophet. There's no greater prophet than John. In John chapter 2, the Jews are asking Jesus for a sign, and Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. In the very next verse, it explains that Jesus meant that his body would be raised from the dead. But it is noteworthy that in his original statement, he says, I will raise it up. This would be a claim that only God could make and certainly does not indicate that he is a victim of God the Father's brutality. In John chapter 3, Jesus talks about the fact that as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This very much portends the type of death and the sin that he would be taking on himself. Notice that Jesus is calmly and painstakingly explaining these things and prophesying to Nicodemus, the Pharisee, who knew the Old Testament very well. Jesus is not at all cowering or showing any sign of fearing the acts of a capricious, angry father. Jesus is declaring the plan and the victory and the reward. In verse 17, it mentions that God sent his son, but we will see a continual theme throughout that this was a very cooperative sending, that Jesus was fully in agreement with what God was doing here, what they were doing as God together, God the Father and God the Son. Then in verse 35, it is emphasized that the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. Jesus is not a hapless, unwilling victim. He is in total control, as we will see more of. In John chapter 4, we have Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman, which is so beautiful in a number of ways. Specifically, in verse 22, he says, We worship that which we know, for salvation is from the Jews. So Jesus knows he is going to save people. Then in verse 26, He claims to be the Messiah, so he understands that he has been prophesied about when he says this. He knows what his role will be. Then in verse 34, he says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He's using the verb to do as it is an action of choice. It is not impassive. This is not something that is happening to him. This is something he is doing. In John chapter 5 and verse 18, we see that the Jews sought to kill Jesus because they understood that his claims described him as equal to God. And it is interesting to think about this in terms of him also talking about submitting. 
But from context, we can see that this is not the submission of the weaker to the stronger or the victim to the oppressor. It is a submission of love as only an equal can give, much like the Bible talks about the submission of a husband and a wife in their relationship. In verse 36, he emphasizes this again. He says, For the works which the Father gave me to accomplish, the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. And in verse 39 of chapter 5, it verifies the Old Testament and says that those things testify about him. This was all foretold and planned. Neither Jesus nor God are succumbing to the wiles or anger of mankind. In John chapter 6, Jesus says, Don't work for the food which perishes, but for the food which remains to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For God the Father has sealed him. Again, life is in the hands of Jesus. Jesus does talk about himself in the third person sometimes to make it clear who he is and to point out Old Testament prophecies that refer to him. So again, we have a plan. In verse 38, Jesus claims to have come down from heaven specifically to do the will of the Father who sent him. Then in verse 53, he uses a very pointed metaphor to make clear the degree of the sacrifice that he will make with his flesh and his blood. Then in John chapter 7, verse 6, we get more into this idea that he is very much in control of the timing of all of this. He says, my time has not yet come. Then in verse 33 of chapter 7, we see that Jesus is looking way beyond the fact that he's going to die on the cross. He says, I will go to him who sent me. Jesus is not captive to the trouble of the moment or to his death on the cross. In John chapter 8, verse 20, it says again, yet no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Jesus is not subject to the whims of the multitudes, the schemes of the religious leaders, or the powers of the worldly government. He would do things at the right time his way. Then in verse 29, we have the interesting statement that the Father hasn't left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. This verse lends support to the idea that when Jesus on the cross said the lines, uh, why have you forsaken me, that he's actually referring to the title of Psalm 22, which is apparently how the Jews did things. They didn't have the numbers of them. They referred to them by the first line so that people would recognize the prophecies about him there but we're not going to go down that more now. We're just going to use this verse as one more example that Jesus was always doing the things that were pleasing to the Father by choice. And of course, in John chapter 8, verse 58, we have the ending of a very long discussion with the Jews where Jesus makes the statement, before Abraham came into existence, I am. Therefore, they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus was hidden. This is just one example of where Jesus is showing himself to be God in the mysterious triune way, which is presented throughout Scripture. Three persons in one. The incarnation of the Son is not the same person as the Father, who is Spirit, yet they are one being. Now let's go on to John chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. He again claims to be the Son of God, and remember the Jews wanted to stone him for that, and he accepts the worship of the healed man. In John chapter 10, verse 11, he talks about being the good shepherd that lays down his life. Then, just in case you need further clarification, in verse 17, he says, I lay down my life and no one takes it from me. 
In verse 39, the Jews again try to seize him, but he went out of their hand. I find this a humorously curious way of describing it. It's like he's just slipping away, and then you can see them turning to each other and saying, I thought you had him. No, I thought you had him. But whatever exactly happened, they could not get him when it was not his time and his plan. In John chapter 11, we have the story of how he raised Lazarus from the dead. And in verse 25, he makes the very clear statement to Martha, saying, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will still live even if he dies. This is the statement of someone who is in complete control of what is going on. In John chapter 12, in verse 7, there is pure nard used, quote, for the day of his burial. Only dead people are buried, and he knows full well that he is going to die. Then verse 23, now the time has come, but he puts it in terms of being glorified. He will be, he was glorified by what he did. In verse 27, he says, now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this time. But I came to this time for this cause. Father, glorify your name. One more example that he knew full well why he was here and he was in agreement with the plan. Then in verse 32, he again refers to his type of death and saying, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Then we get to John chapter 13, where we get the description that Jesus, knowing that his time had come, that he would depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he came from God and was going to God, arose from supper and laid aside his garments. And this begins the whole story of the foot washing. But for our purposes here, let's go ahead to verse 19, where now he says, From now on, I will tell you before it happens that when it happens, you may believe that I am he. Just in case they hadn't caught on yet, he's going to be very specific. In verse 36, he says, where I am going, you can't follow me now, but you will follow me afterwards. In John chapter 14, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus knew he was providing the way, the only way for us to come to God the Father. He was choosing to make that way because it is a very good thing, and he loves us that much. In John chapter 15, verse 13, he makes the mind-blowing statement, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And then he goes on to explain that he is calling the disciples his friends. And then in verse 26, we have the description of the Spirit and some of the triune purpose and interactions. In John chapter 16, verse 5, he says, I am going to him who sent me. And then in verses 31 and 32, he says that all of his disciples will be scattered, everyone to his own place, and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. I have told you these things, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have trouble, but cheer up, I have overcome the world. This is another indication that Jesus the Son and the Father are mutually committed to this plan of his death and sacrifice and resurrection. 
Then in John chapter 17, verse 1, Jesus says, Father, the time has come. Glorify your son, that your son may also glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, so he will give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Did you catch that? Jesus has been given authority over all flesh. This is not an ignominious sacrifice in terms of the outcome. Yes, he bore our iniquities, as it talks about in Isaiah 53, but he is looking forward to, quote, the glory which I had with you before the world existed, end quote. He existed before anything of our world was. In verse 19 of chapter 17, he says, for their sakes, I sanctify myself. To sanctify something is to set it apart for sacred use. Then in John chapter 18, we get to when they actually arrested him. And the irony of it is that he had to actually encourage them and help them along to get it done. In verse 4, it says, Jesus, therefore, knowing all the things that were happening to him, went out and said to them, who are you looking for? He went out to meet them, to make sure that they could find him. And then he asks who they are looking for. And when he answers them, they fall backward. And he asks to ask them again to help get things going. In verse 10, we have the incident where Simon Peter struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. But Jesus says, put the sword into its sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not surely drink it? This is not something being poured down his throat. He is picking up the cup and drinking it. In verse 37, he's talking to Pilate and he says, You say that I am a king. For this reason I have been born and for this reason I have come into the world that I should testify to the truth. The truth about what? The truth about why he had come. The truth about the prophecies in the scriptures. The truth of him laying down his life for our salvation the truth that we have sin, and he is the only way to come to God the Father. Then in John chapter 19 and verse 11, Jesus explains to Pilate that Pilate has no power at all against him, Jesus, unless it is given from above. Jesus's answers to Pilate have Pilate a little bit shaken, but he ultimately follows through with the plan because there is a plan that God is carrying out and it will be done. Then in verse 30, Jesus says, it is finished. He has, according to plan, given himself as the necessary sacrifice, as the Lamb of God. Then in John chapter 20, we get to see that death could not hold him. Just like he said, he came back to life. I get quite a kick out of the detail in verse 7, where it says, and the cloth that had been on his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but rolled up in place by itself. This gives me a picture of someone who is completely in control of what is going on. His resurrection is not unexpected or chaotic, and this little detail gives us a hint of his attitude about it. In verse 20, he showed them the scars in his hands and his side. He didn't show them like, see what these people did to me. He showed them like, see what I did for you. And in John chapter 21 and verse 22, Jesus says to Peter, if I desire that he stay until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So here we get verification of the fact that even though he's going where they cannot go yet, that he is going to come back. Just from reading the book of John, 
you can see the clear intent, the clear control, the clear love of what Jesus was doing. He was not a victim in the sense that he wasn't doing something against his will or being abused. He was doing this in love because the results of his sacrifice were just that precious to him. I'd like to also share with you some scriptures from the book of Hebrews, which explain all of this very nicely. Let's start with Hebrews chapter 7, verses 22 through 28. By so much, Jesus has become the collateral of a better covenant. Many indeed have been made priests because they are hindered from continuing by death, but he, because he lives forever, has his priesthood unchangeable. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, seeing that he lives forever to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, holy, guiltless, undefiled, separated from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who doesn't need, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. For he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who have weakness, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son forever who has been perfected. Then Hebrews chapter 9, starting at verse 11. But Christ, having come as a high priest of the coming good things, through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, nor yet through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, entered in once for all into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption. And then down in verse 26 of chapter 9, but now once at the end of the ages, he has been revealed to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Then in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Therefore, let's also, seeing we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let's run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I think it's pretty obvious what Jesus's perspective of the cross was. As we started out saying, he predicted it, he cooperated with it, he controlled the timing, and he saw beyond it. Praise and thanks be to God for what he did for us. Thanks for letting me share my thoughts on this, and I will see you next time. That is the Bible News Press segment for today, but not the end of our journey. 